Today, I talk all things science with my good friend, Nabil Qureshi. He completed his undergrad in biology at the University of California, Irvine, his master's in biomedical sciences at Barry University, and currently is studying at the Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine. If you geek out on science like I do, you'll enjoy this one. All right, brother. Thanks for being here. Cheers. Cheers. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, this is the earliest recording yet, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're back. Yeah. Um, I got a busy vacation schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Freaking. So we're going to be talking about all things science today. Mm-hmm. And I want to tease out what what was your story with like what led you into science and wanting to study medicine? Was it family? Was it a decision you made on your own? Some sort of altruistic reason to help people or? I mean, it was a lot of different reasons, I guess. I mean, I don't know if you know, but. I started out with acting when I when I started college. Acting. Yeah. Wait, that does ring a bell. Early on when you were at BJ's what hosting? No, no, no. This this is a er like way before I met you actually. Just pull this, this is like a little bit. Oh, my bad. You, you could pull it towards you. You're totally chill. Okay. Uh sorry. This is before uh this is like two thousand nine. I think I met you what, two thousand my first two years of, of college I was a theater major. And then uh, I remember I went to I went to Hollywood one time uh, to like work, get uh, extra work. And I was in a line of like maybe a thousand people. And I realized that they were doing that twice a week. And so like, and that was just one agency. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just looked at the line of people. I was like, this is never going to happen. It's like, there's way too many people coming here thinking they're, they're going to make it big. And really, how many people do? So none. Totally. And why, um, like, why did you want to be an actor? So like, was that what you wanted to do since high school? And that's what I, that's what I liked doing all throughout high school. Uh, that was just like what I thought I was going to end up doing. And people told me like, oh, you, you should go into acting. So, you know, I just, just your personality. Yeah, I guess so. And I was always just acting anyway. Did you ever Uh, land anything like uh, no, I, I, I had some extra work, like yeah. background work, but I mean, I never really went for like auditioning for anything. I never really pursued it, you know, other than going do, like taking acting classes and stuff like that. But, Got it. but so, then, you know, I, I, I always also wanted to do something in the sciences. I always liked that through high school. So originally, I guess it was a, it's, there's like a multitude of reasons why I wanted to go into medicine, but, uh, Originally, is just because I just love science. So you've and, always and loved research. science. Yeah. But you wanted to be an actor. <clears throat> and then what? Because that's like kind of a crazy switch. <clears throat> I feel like you don't oh, hear yeah. that often is yeah. acting to science. But you had right. a love for both of them. And yeah. You saw. I saw a, potential in one and, you know, not so much in the other. That little dream. That, but, that young yeah. dream. I mean, there's like there's a multitude of reasons I went into it. Like. I, of course, like there's the altruistic factor. Uh, I used to volunteer in a hospital and, you know, I just like helping people and helping patients. And, you know, I was, I was good at it. And, you know, there's the science aspect that's attached to it. So, you know, combining those two, uh, when I, when I was in college, I did a lot of research. And so like, I would also, uh, as I was in the, like volunteering in the hospital a lot as well. 
And so at, from doing that and like seeing how you can help patients and, uh, yeah, I feel you, you know, what, was it hard to step away from acting? Did you feel like you were giving up or was it just no. a realistic? I mean, it was, it was just really early in college. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It was just kind of just feeling out what I, what I wanted to go into in the first place. So was so, it was it was really early on, so it was really easy switch. So currently, you're at which I'm at, uh, college? The Idaho College of Osteopathic Medicine. Sweet. So when you initially transitioned into the sciences, what was your like path and trajectory? Did you did you know what school you wanted to go to? Did you have like an ultimate no. plan of what field of medicine you wanted to end up in? No, well, okay. So I also when I was a uh, when I was in high school. Um, one of my best friends was diagnosed with uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. I think when we were about 15. Um, and so I was in, the, in and out of the hospital a lot um, in, the, in, the, in the cancer ward at UCI. And, you know, I was in and out of the hospital a lot and, like, t- got to talk to with the, uh, the oncologist there. And that really drove my passion towards oncology. So I always wanted to go into... Uh, research for cancer or, you know, to be a cancer doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that where you still are now? Is that what you're pursuing or what has um, evolved now? I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. So I'm a third year at, at, uh, at Idaho college of osteopathic medicine. So, uh, in your third year, you start doing rotations in a hospital. So come July, I'll be doing an orthopedic surgery rotation after that psychiatry. And then we just kind of go through like emergency medicine, internal medicine, like all th- all through the different departments, and then from there you kind of figure out what you like, and you know what you want to go into, and then in your fourth year you're going to do your audition rotations, which means that you uh, are going to apply towards a specific specialty. I see. Okay, so I'm curious about that structure because I didn't know that. So <clears> the first three years, you're learning and dabbling in all the different potential right. types of medicine you can go to, and then. Going into your fourth, that's when you actually like boots on the ground, go into a hospital and start experiencing well, things. You go, you go into a hospital your third year. So, but basically, the way it works is your first two years are in the classroom. So, you're just going through all the basic sciences, you know, histology, immunology, pharmacology, all that, um, in a systems based approach. So, you're looking through like the endocrine system, the gastrointestinal system, cardiovascular system. But you're in a, you're just in a classroom, really. Uh, your third and fourth years is when you're going to end up in the hospital. So for uh, my third year, I'm heading to Idaho Falls in uh, eastern Idaho. Um, and I'm going to work at the eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center there. Um, and then in your fourth year is when you have the opportunity to move away from your from your from from that site, that original training site, uh, and you kind of apply broadly to wherever you want to end up hopefully getting a residency they call it an audition rotation i see so then <clears throat> does that residency happen right around the same time as your eighth year when you're going to actually become a doctor your residency begins as soon as you graduate that's your that's basically you're you're still you're working but you're still in training i see so you're working so you have, under an existing yeah doctor? you're working under an attending physician attending physician mm-hmm. Someone cool. who's already done their regi- their uh, residency. I see. And right now you're leaning towards what was it ER? So I I like through my my two years I've like really liked emergency medicine, mm-hmm. 
and I used to work in, I used to volunteer, I don't know if you remember, I used to volunteer at uh, St. Mary's, Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach in the emergency department there. No so I like, I like that type of medicine, like acute care. What uh, do you like about it? That it's, it's kind of like in the emergency room, it's kind of like detective work. You want to, if a patient comes in, you want to figure out, you know, what, what is something that I don't want to miss here that might potentially kill this patient. So, because you're like the I, first screen, like they first exactly. come in yeah. and you're diagnosing like what's happening right off the bat. You don't have right. previous paperwork from mm-hmm. like who knows, you don't might not even have them in the system. It's No, yeah, they I mean they they could, you know, be homeless, they could couldn't be in any system possibly. And like stabilizing someone in an emergent situation is a lot more exciting to me than, you know, working day in and day out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. Which is still exciting too. So to be an ER <clears throat> doctor like that, do you have to have kind of a specialty in all different aspects of the body? I, I mean, I know everyone of, as a baseline already right. has that if they're a doctor, but. Uh, I mean, you do have to consider all the different body systems when like, let's say you're an uh, internist, internal medicine physician, like uh, a hospitalist in the hospital. Um you kind of, I guess you're kind of like a jack of all trades in the emergency room. You you really need to know the most emergent situations that could happen with, with any of the systems. Got it. What was the craziest thing you saw when you were volunteering? Uh, it's It might not, it, it wouldn't seem very exciting, but uh, the craziest thing I saw was a, a spinal tap on a baby who fell, uh, who was drowning. Uh, and they pulled her out of the uh, um, out of the pool, brought her into the, the emergency department. We saw, we, I mean, we saw a lot of That's other things, gnarly. but that was probably the most. It, that was a scariest situation because it was it's what, a fucking like baby, a, like a nine month old baby. Oh my was god! Completely passed out, and the, the entire hospital was around this baby, trying to like stabilize her, and and the physician was trying to. What's the you spinal know. tap for at that point? I guess they were trying to test her uh, her spinal fluid. I'm not sure exactly what was going on. Huh. Uh, I just remember that That's being terrible. the scariest Dude, situation. How many, so many but, kids yeah. die by way of drowning in pools and whatnot. That's so scary. Yeah. And then we, we, I mean, it was downtown Long Beach. So we had, I always tried to work like a Friday night. That's when you see like the really gnarly stuff, like. We'd have like people come in with gunshot wounds. I was gonna say, L- you know, a LBC. lot of stabbing victims. Oh, uh, there was this one time I went up to the operating room. Uh, I was I was uh, shadowing this physician or this uh, surgeon. Um, someone had gone to the bars the night before, uh, and while they were going to their car, they got they're, they're getting you know uh, robbed. Mm. Um, so the guy basically beat his face into a pulp and he came in unconscious to the operating room and the physician had to take his eye out. Holy yeah, shit. It was, it was that bad. You like made a, a motion with your finger like as <laughs> taking the eye out. Yeah, that was basically no, yeah, so he just like scooped it out. Is there like a tool, like a spoon? Yeah, I guess. Oh my, so you, you just made the assessment, this eye's done. We yeah, gotta basically. get it out of there. Can you imagine that? Like you're just walking to your car af- after 
a night out. Jesus Christ. And then you just wake up without your eye in the hospital. Couldn't he have robbed him and not gone sure. to that extent? Probably on some fucking I don't know what PCP the situation was, but shit. yeah, who knows. God, that's terrible. Yeah. So the, re- the reason why I want to tease that out is just because I'm fascinated by people that are on the front lines that uh-huh. see the craziest of shit. Right. Because, I mean, I wouldn't want to mm. do that. That's freaking crazy, just constantly seeing blood and, like, bodies exposed. Because I, I, you see people, and sure. they're encapsulated in their skin, and everything's normal. Everything's good. <laughs> it's, you know, some people will cut themselves, and they see a little bit of blood spill, and they'll, like, faint. There's that extreme, yeah. and then there's opposite mm-hmm. extreme where it's like I'm an ER I know, I have doctor that and like that. classmates. Classmates though. are they are they going to be getting into that line of work? Probably I mean, not. Because yeah, you you think that yeah maybe that would be a factor. I, maybe I mean, we I did shouldn't have... be in this line of work. I pass out when I see a little bit of right. blood. But we had, uh, a, we had a classmate that uh, we were watching a video uh, of a like a, a baby being born. Um, she passed out from that. Jesus, she's not having any kids. Probably not. <laughs> or at least she'll be uh, uh, you know, anesthetized for it. That's crazy. That that's so strange. It's like the most natural thing yeah, that keeps us I mean, here. But still doing it. Yeah. And you, know, you usually, I think, na- naturally in quotes, you don't have like a camera there, like seeing like f- full fledged what's going uh-huh. on, like the mother's point of view. You don't really, you can't, no, you, you don't can't see, see anything. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, man, much respect to everyone out there that's like already doing that and you're uh-huh. going to be there eventually yeah. if you decide to do the ER stuff. And then what was the other So, I mean, I'm, I'm between a lot of different things. Okay. Like I said, in your th- you don't really go through rotations and see what you actually like until your third year. Mm-hmm. Let's do top three. So we already covered so, ER. Uh I got I got to throw hematology oncology on there because that's the reason why I wanted to go to medicine in the first place. So cancer, mm-hmm. um, and then in t- I also like internal medicine and and critical care medicine. Again, it's you know more of an acute setting, and you know you're 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 trying to stabilize and treat someone who's critically ill. Got it. So that's not. ER where it's like they first come in and something traumatic's happened. It's someone's diagnosed with, let's say, a condition yeah. that's killing them and you're trying to fix it. Let's say like right now, like COVID, like if if their respiratory problems are really bad, they're going to the intensive care unit. Mm. And that's, you know, that's what I like as well. So it's like the ER sends you to <clears throat> the intensive care unit? Yeah. Okay. The most critically ill patients go to the intensive care unit. What's the process like in a hospital, which allows like capacity issues is what I'm asking. Cause that was a big thing with COVID Mm. is it's all about that is getting overran. Let's build infrastructure outside of the hospitals itself. Um, Who makes those calls where it's like, Hey, this person's at 90, like 90% and then they're going to die. Or so they're, they're closer to that point where maybe let's, relinquish their bed for someone else coming in well that you can't really you can't that ethically you can't do that no that's what i'm asking like what's the process like well i mean once they're admitted you have you have to do everything that you can to to save them you you, you're not relinquishing beds because (laughs) 
<laughs> on their deathbed. You're you're not you're not God. You can't make that call. Oh yeah, you know? I know. That's what I would think. I, that's a difficult situation. Yeah, for, um, so your hope is you never get to 100% capacity. There's always a bed for someone. Of course. There's you, you never want to get to 100% capacity, but I don't know if you remember watching the news when COVID first hit and things were getting really bad in Michigan. People in the hallways and shit. People in the hallways, yeah, yeah. basically. And they were like stacking up bodies in in closets because they didn't have any place to put them. That's, that's a very yeah. scary sight. Yeah. Yeah, phys- physicians have a an ethical principle called beneficence. It means that you have to help if you if you have a patient under your care, you need to do everything that you possibly can to to help that patient. And so no, nobody's relinquishing beds or anything like that. Cause <laughs> well, you said it's beneficence? Yeah, beneficence. I've never heard that word before. But that's cool, though. That's like the baseline yeah. of what I would interpret everything medicine. Like if you, of course, the line of work is so important, you're compensated at a certain rate, which I totally <laughs> agree with, too. But the hope is that someone's getting in for that, the beneficence. Yeah, so I mean the the two probably the two main ethical principles that every physician has to adhere to is beneficence and non-maleficence, which basically means do no harm. You know, do everything you can for the patient and don't do anything to harm them. Yeah. Like not on purpose, but shit <laughs> happens all the time. Mistakes are made. It's literally practicing medicine. No one's Yeah, but it's sure, yeah. It's it things that happen, but it also I guess the Specifically, non-maleficence also has to do with, you know, staying, basically staying in your lane. Like, like for example, like if you're doing surgery and you, you're like, let's say you're doing surgery, like on an ovarian torsion or something like that. And you notice that the patient also has something like a cyst on their appendix. You're, you have to operate within your bounds and you don't operate on the, on the appendix and remove that cyst because I mean, it, it objectively that's a good thing, right? Just to remove a, a cyst that you find in the appendix, but like the body's open, <clears throat> it's exposed. It's open. You see yeah. it. You see another problem. Uh, non-maleficence means not operating on the cyst because it's not an emergent situation. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not what the patient like went under for. So you know, you know, does you that happen quite often? Where you. You've, you're going no. for one problem, and then maybe you're exposed to something oh, else. Oh, I think that happens probably fairly often. Yes, yeah, so, so many people have so many comorbid- comorbidities, and if you're going into surgery for for one thing, and you're a little bit older, chances are that there's you know a few things wrong with you. Yeah. So you brought up comorbidities, <clears throat> and I think this is an important thing to go over, especially with COVID and okay. the death rate. Um, let's tease that out a little bit. So. It brings up a bigger issue, too, of just the overall health crisis in America where mm-hmm. people who had these comorbidities, um, whether it was pre-existing or not, oftentimes it's like lifestyle driven. And of course, there's genetic reasons, too. But sure. what what's the importance there with like taking care of yourself baseline to protect yourself from these pathogens that that took so many lives. Cause I think what it was, Grant, can you look up the average comorbidity rate for COVID deaths? And I think the main one was obesity, right? Just, 
oh, yeah. putting strains mm-hmm. on your um, like your lungs and your cardiovascular system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obesity affects your respiratory system as well. It makes it harder to breathe. So, I mean, I think that's what most people, I mean, most COVID deaths were because of respiratory issues, right? Yeah. Is that like, that's is fluid things. filling up in the lungs? Is it like leading to something? Yeah, that's that's pneumonia. Yeah. So, I mean, COVID does, re- does lead to pneumonia. Like, you know that I had, mm. I had COVID pretty badly and I had pretty bad pneumonia. Makes it basically impossible to breathe. I, but I mean, if, if you even look up, not even just COVID, if you look up the like top 10 causes of death, I would, I, what, more than half the list is preventable diseases. Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. From predisposing factors like obesity or smoking. Yeah, yeah. And I think like cancer and whatnot too, which I want to get to. Yeah. But heart disease, cancer, you know, chronic lower respiratory diseases. So let's tease out heart disease because <clears throat> that when people say heart disease, that's pretty much, or most of it is a lifestyle choice, right? Of like being super unhealthy. Like there's a percentage of people so, that yeah. are born with heart defects and yeah, they're challenges. with congenital heart disease. Yes. But when, because I, I just remember growing up and hearing heart disease, mm-hmm. it was always in my head like, oh my God, that's terrible. That's like something out of your control. It's like heart disease. Or let's say heart disease runs in your family, right. which I know is true to a certain extent, but it's like, well, you know, maybe maybe grandma and grandpa were just eating too much shit and not exercising enough. So, mm-hmm. oh, you got to be careful. Heart disease runs in the family. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, it can run in your family. Some people are more genetically predisposed to having mm-hmm. heart disease. I mean, if you, if you just look at like statistics from different countries, it's not all the same. But a lot of that has to do with your diet as well. So diet exercise. Yeah. I mean, so like different countries have different rates for, for mortality, for cardiovascular disease, but different countries also have different cultures and different diets. And if you look at those countries, usually those countries have pretty poor diets. They're famous for, for having poor diets. Like, in the U.S., number one cause is heart and, disease, and, and, you know, we have an obesity epidemic, epidemic here, too. We do, and it's it's kind of built into mm-hmm. part of our capitalistic system, which I'm all for, like, free trade and free choices and do what you want, but, like, all the fast food joints that have been built mm-hmm. over decades and placing them in areas that or for lower economic people who don't have the ability or the the knowledge to prepare like healthy foods and then you just you go down this rabbit hole and that's what the number one leading cause of death in the US heart disease. Yeah. Like how how much of that is just McDonald's cheeseburgers but well I mean now if you see other countries that are starting to expand their fast food choices their obesity rates are going up as well. Oh no shit. Yeah. Like what, Japan, China, right? We're going I into. I believe. Saw some documentary. I think it, w- it might have been Japan. Yeah, in Japan and China. Grant, can you look up um, obesity rates increasing in like, some foreign countries due to like fast food? And just here, you can grab this a little oh, bit and just kind of turn it. Yeah, exactly. That's perfect. Um, but no, it's. The, 
it, I was tying it into the comorbidity rates because one of the things about COVID, and I totally understand that COVID gets here, you can't tell everyone, hey, like, go fix your heart and cardiovascular <laughs> system overnight. Like that doesn't work. You had years and years of damage. Sure. But I'm hopeful that it's like health in general and like quotes is just on people's minds now. Mm-hmm. And you had some people that put on the COVID-20 or whatever. But then you also had a lot of people that COVID, are like, oh, the COVID-20. The COVID like 20 pounds, you know, like people, oh, like sure. people yeah. put on quarantine weight. Oh, yeah. But it's just, I I, it seems like health uh, amongst all the problems and challenges in our country right now, it, people are talking about it, you know? Yeah, it, as it's they, on, I mean, as they should. People are talking about it. Your and health should come first. Absolutely. Like if yeah. I've always believed if like it doesn't matter how much money you have or right. how likable you are, if if you're not taking care of yourself, then it's that could body. all be taken away from yeah. you. Like you could literally lose all of that. Um, so I just always like to emphasize the importance of just taking care of yourself to give yourself the best shot of something like yeah, if you're if you're in poor health, nothing else in your life is going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to bring that into the third option you were saying is like cancer research and preventing cancer. Cause mm-hmm. this is, this is a topic that's always fascinating to me too, is I want to like, help me understand why cancer hasn't been resolved yet. Like treatments for it, because is it like, I understand how pathogens mutate and you get new viruses and whatnot. Is that like similar mechanisms to where you're always, cause, cause like I, all the money and for it to be such a catastrophic problem that goes into like cancer research, how is it like, how have we not had a better solution yet or fix? Well, because the issue is that cancer isn't just one thing. It's, it's, it's a very broad overarching term that just means basically your, your body itself has stopped. It's mutated in some way that, you're going to start your, your cells are going to start overgrowing, you know, and there's, there's just so many different types of cancer. There's lung cancer, there's uh, testicular cancer, ovarian cancer, stomach cancer. They, and they all happen because of different genes. So really there's two ways that some, like a, a tumor can start overgrowing is either you have these genes called uh, tumor suppressor genes, which makes sure that your cells don't start growing, you know, out of control. Uh, when those genes get mutated, that's when you start developing a tumor. Got it. So in in so- the world of science, like in our mm-hmm. bodies, are there, like you just said, there's common, more common cancers, and then there's less common sure. cancers. And so let's say testicular cancer. Is there a subset of genes or like testicular cancers under that umbrella or is that like one cancer? No, there's a lot of different types. There's for testicular cancer is also another broad term. You could have germ cell tumors. You could have yolk sac tumors. You could have a semimoma, which is a, a a more benign cancer, but um, there's, there's all a whole, there's thousands of different types of cancers that can develop. Mm -hmm. And any, any different type of cell that you have, can develop a certain type of cancer. Like let's say I can, you can, you can develop melanoma, which is a 
cancer of your melanocytes, which is, you know, skin cancer mm -hmm. or, you know, there's different ty there's different types of breast cancer. You know, like you've I'm sure you've heard of the the BRCA1 gene. No. Uh, well, it's it's one of the most common types of cancers. There's also uh, HER2 gene uh, breast cancer. Um, so is the affinite number though? It's not infinite number of like different cells that can mutate in the no. I mean, the body whatever. I mean, any any cell that you have in the body can mutate. Yeah, and there's different Some types more, of cells, right? More, For different yeah, like parts. Right. So, what I'm trying to get to is just like how we're all about measuring like mechanisms and the mutation and identifying mm -hmm. like the the gene sequence, right? That might lead to a specific cancer. If that's a finite number, how have we not been able to identify, let's say, the the five or ten most common cancers that kill people? And then you, oh, we have. So then, yeah, it's is it all just about treating it? You can't like necessarily reverse those mutated cells from like splitting and. No, I, I mean, as soon as those those cells have mutated, you you need to get rid of them. But it's, I mean, we we have identified the most common types of cancers and you know what what types of genes are mutated but mm -hmm. but then there's a, the other problem of when you find when do, when do you find the cancer you know ha, is it is it too late has it metastasized if if a cancer is metastasized to the rest of the body then it's a lot harder to treat at that yeah. point grant can you look <laughs> up the uh cancer rates if we could i mean go Just over time how they've increased yeah if if we could go into the body and kill every single cell that was mutated, uh, that would be great. But the technology is just not there yet. And the so the main, of, um, main types of cancer therapy are going to be surgery or chemotherapy or, or radiotherapy. Got it. Are you familiar with David Sinclair's work? No. I think he's a... We'll look him up after, but... Um, real quick, so overall there was an increase in cancer incidence of almost 30% between 1973 and 2015. Holy shit. Colorectal thyroid testicular cancers. Along with melanoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma are most responsible for this increase in cancers among adolescents and young adults. So 30% from 73 to 15. That's Fucking a lot, dude. It's a lot. I'm curious what, uh, like, uh, how old people are living now versus 1973, though. Oh, that's a good point. Because the older you get, the more likely you are to get cancer. Mm -hmm. But just, I mean, the more time your body has on Earth, the more likely it is to get mute. Something's going to get mutated. For sure. And your body just becomes less efficient at mm -hmm. those early processes that prevent and suppress the spread and right the more the more time you have more time your cells have to live the the more likely it is that something's going to go that wrong things go wrong yeah okay so that brings up david sinclair's work um nabil because he's yeah. uh he's an expert in like aging and anti-aging and he's coming out with new okay. like i think pharmaceutical studies they're still they already finished animal trials and they're in human trials right now and who is this guy David Sinclair. Okay. Grant, can you look up David Sinclair? S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R. And 
let's see here. He's an Australian biologist, professor of genetics, and co-director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for Biology of Aging at Harvard Medical School. I've heard of that. So he's he's going over like the different mechanisms of. Um, God, I'm definitely going to mess some of this up, but just measuring like within the cell, I think specifically in like mitochondria and ATP production, where not only has he been able to figure out how to slow aging, but literally reverse it based off different compounds. I think he's developing a clinical drug right now Mm. to where it replicates, let's say they were doing test subjects with like obese people or even people with diabetes that took the drug and they, they were showing, um, they were showing effects like if they were someone who was working out consistently and like eating healthy. So he's developing like these anti-aging drugs that that make the mitochondria like work better, produce more of them. And just keeping your like because he, he wants to change the philosophy of like aging, like our numbers like going okay. around the sun. Yeah, because that's how we measure how old we are. Sure. He's trying to develop a clock that. Time stamps like a biological us clock. based off of measuring our like cellular data. Okay. So he's like, oh, you're, he was, um, I was exposed to him on the Joe Rogan podcast and mm-hmm. he's like, oh, Joe, you're 50 years old, let's say, but I can measure your cells. And really with your lifestyle choices, you are operating at like a 38, 39 year old. Okay. How old is like, he? I think he's like 53, 54. Oh, okay. But anyhow, he's he's like cutting edge on on the uh, the aging processes and and trying to hone in on it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen his stuff. I guess I'll I'll look into it. Um, you said that he's working on mitochondria for anti aging. So he's um, God, what was it? He's trying to produce these different compounds, these different drugs that spark in your like cellular system like okay. increases of energy and like mitochondria production atp and whatnot okay hmm. but um yeah I've, i haven't his research is from so 2004 okay let's uh, get i mean ba- i'll have to i'll have to look into it yeah so back into to cancer so we've identified yeah. the main ones and Which there's is, just no anti- cancer is really just cells that have beaten the aging process mm-hmm. and they just start living forever. Is Does that start in the <clears throat> DNA sequencing going yes. wrong? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it most cancer is just due to mutations. And so you, you normally your cells have a cycle and at the end of that cycle, they die. Set, cancer cells are cells that have beaten that process. And so they're, they're you, like as, as your cells age, they're, DNA is going to shorten. Cancer cells have uh, enzymes that can keep that DNA the same the same length or even add to it, and so uh, because of that, they'll they'll live forever. And that just is it goes against the process because that cell's supposed to die. It's like, yeah. hey, you're getting old. You're gonna start Could replicating you and if fucking you had up other all cells. your skin cells, and they never oh, died. That's and interesting. You would, I mean, you would, yeah. I think I remember in bio class, like back in the day, like if you were to scratch your arm and then look into a light, like yeah, you could see how much cells. is like coming off. 
right. they were all to stay, you would just be this sag of. Well, you all your skin cells on the outside are dead. Mm-hmm. So imagine if you know they they never died and sloughed off. You would just be constantly dividing cells and adding to your body. So when that happens internally too, that's a big problem. Like let's say you're not, that's you can't see is. it. Right. Are most cancers tum- tumor-like or is it? Cancer, uh, cancer is literally tumor. Tumor is a cancer. Yeah. Oh, okay. And some cancer of them are benign and then some of them aren't? Yeah, some of them are. What's are, happening in a benign tumor rather than a? Usually a benign tumor is encapsulated. There's, there's a few things, a few criteria that go into metastasis, but uh, a metastasized tumor has its own blood supply. It, uh, it start and it starts invading other tissues. Got it. So a metastatic tumor will, will start invading other parts of your body. What a trip. So in solving these different cancers, like there's, Right now, there's just no way to do it. It's just treating them. It's suppressing. Well, it's it's treating and identifying individual cancers and then finding treatment regimens for, for specific cancers. Mm-hmm. There's not really like one like all-encompassing drug that can solve every yeah, single that, type that of cancer. Sense. There's, I mean, there's a lot of different drugs that solve, that uh, treat a lot of different types of cancers, but there's no like one overarching like mechanism of action for for drugs to treat all different types of cancers because mm-hmm. they're also different so the conspiracy theories that call out oh they're they're not solving the problem because then you completely close out this massive industry of treating the problem is do you think there's any weight to that no not no at all. not at all because it, it ties back into the reason why people get into medicine which what was the word you said Oh, like, beneficence? Yeah, it's yeah. That would go against everything beneficent if yeah, you're literally I, oh, like behind the scenes. Let's keep cancer alive because. Well, I'm, I won't pretend to say that everyone follows those principles. There's, yeah, of, of course, there's people that are into it for the money, but so isn't that a problem? It doesn't that kind of yeah. But to, to but to say the entire industry is is no, not the entire. Okay, so not the entire industry, but let's say there's cutting. There's people breaking massive ground on certain areas like why they can come to market and help solve lots of branches in the cancer industry. Are they like, how is it not that there's been one or two or just a couple people that are trying to solve the issue and they actually solve like a specific type of cancer? Yeah, we we have people come up with very uh, treatment regimens that have made certain cancers very treatable. Really? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the expansion of pharmaceuticals and and medical research in the last 100 years, like a lot of these problems would never be solved. That's true, and it ties into the 30 percent increase. So you have sure. you have grounds being made in the sciences and cancer treatment, which is great. Like, yeah. cancers are becoming more treatable. People are getting older, therefore, cancer rate might be going up. That's a really interesting. Fact lot, that yeah, we would have to we would have to like study that a little bit more to see out of that thirty percent how much is that is due to just the increase in age. Yeah, I th- I think a significant portion of mm-hmm. it is due to us just living longer in the first place. So David like Sinclair, say that like, and yeah, like some of the f- 
future like cutting edge scientists. I forget the name of this other one. Um, he's like a future science technologist type guy, but he thinks eventually humans are going to be able to like live forever. Um, it's possible because David Sinclair specifically, he thinks that aging is a curable disease. Yeah, I agree. So with that being said, scale out a couple thousand years or however long it's going to take. I truly believe that one day people will have the option to kind of live forever, not just in terms of uploading your consciousness and being able to like have your brain and, and that aspect work, but your physical body, if you, if you're measuring the mechanisms, like basic science, now you could, you know, what's causing cancer. Like these cells are dividing the DNA sequencing is fucked up. If you could, if that's a problem that could be solved, let's say you, you stop it from happening or you can reverse it, then technically, doesn't that mean like if you truly lock down that cellular reproduction process to where there's no errors occurring, and then doesn't yeah. that mean you live forever? Theoret- theoretically, it's possible. So the aging process, I'm sure there's a lot of different factors that go into it, but the main factor, as far as I know, is uh, w- w- like I like I said before, after your uh, when your cells start dividing, they uh, your DNA sequence at the ends of it shortens slightly telomeres right telomere yeah, telomeres exactly Being yeah and so like babies and like certain types of uh cells that can live forever they have a gene called tel- or an enzyme called telomerase which keeps those ends uh w- like which intact. M- yeah make sure that they're intact and make sure that you're not losing um fragments at, that are at the end and and a lot of as, as you age and those cells start dividing, uh, you're losing those pieces and that's what they think that aging is. I see. So that actually sparks in my head part of Sinclair's work mm-hmm. is the measuring of those telomeres. So you introduce different compounds okay. or let's say even like stem cells. Or I think in mice they took, what was it, blood, like blood from a young m- mice or mouse and in, put it into an older one. And then you can, they, they measured the telomere, okay. the telomere length would actually get longer, which is not the only factor that contributes to aging, but let's say it's one factor, then you can be like, oh, wow, if, if we correlate that telomere is staying intact and healthy and replicating properly is either like a pause in aging or possibly even reversing it. then that's one mechanism that they were measuring is the telomeres being mm-hmm. like more intact, but it's just, it's so fascinating because you look into the future and if we're going to be potentially living forever, like that scares a lot of people because they think that like goes against God or um, yeah. some sort of bigger picture. And I would argue like if, if he or whatever it is, you know, that we got the, yeah. we got the, the flying spaghetti monster in the yeah. sky. If, we're blessed with these brains to like solve these problems. I don't think we're necessarily going against any sort of I mean, higher power. It's literally like, okay, we have the power now. We just solved this issue. Wouldn't you want us to live forever? It's, I guess it's all the way that you look at it and your own religious beliefs, you mm-hmm. know, like there's Christian scientists who don't believe in medication or really? taking, cause they believe in the, the healing power of God. No shit. Yeah. I, I bet that's a small percentage, right? Or they're 
well, I don't I don't know how many Christian scientists there are. It's a it's a no, there, you know, it's a, a sect of religion. I think there's a lot of um, religious scientists and like scholars and whatnot, but they still believe in medicine no, I, and the truth. It's a it's a specific denomination. Oh. they're called Christian scientists. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of like pray for your cancer to heal, but don't do any Basically. like thing about it in terms of like mechanism physically and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'll, that, I'll, <clears throat> so many people have different religious beliefs and that always, you always have to tie that into your practice as well. Because like, like I said, the, the, with, uh, you, you have to respect people's autonomy and, sure. and, and how they feel about you know, certain type of treatments. Like, like Jehovah's witnesses, they don't believe in blood, blood transfusions. transfusions. Yeah. You have to respect that unless, you know, there's, a, there's other ethical principles that come into like you know making sure that someone's not going to die that's gnarly wait so what about that so in the er if someone's a jehovah's witness and they need a blood transfusion when you apply the the principle of like you have to help a patient what was that term like beneficence yeah yeah or the other one i was thinking of maleficence yeah not so if you want to help save this person like they need a blood transfusion but yeah what, how does that work? Do you know in the hospitals? It, I mean, there's not one answer, but I'll give you like a scenario. Like, and let, uh, let's, let's say, say there's no family in the room to speak for. So it's literally just them. Well, I guess how they know they're Joe's witness, but right. Well, yeah. Ahead. Like if, if you didn't, if you didn't know, then you're obviously going to treat them. You're not going to think about that, but let's, I'll give you, I'll give you a scenario. Cause this is uh, a test question that I had before. Um, you're, you're in the hospital. You're supposed. You you need to do surgery on a patient. They haven't said anything. They haven't given you any type of consent because they've they've been unconscious the whole time. Their parents come in and say that they're Jehovah's Witness and that they're not allowed to do blood transfusions. You're in surgery, and a situation arises where you need to give them a blood transfusion. What would you do? You have to give them a blood transfusion because they they haven't consented to not mm. getting the blood transfusion. So you don't know what's going on. Okay. When in an emergent situation like that, your principle is to do everything that you can to save the patient, which means if that a blood sense. transfusion is indicated, that's what's indicated. That's what what if the patient is conscious prior to surgery, says, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, by all means, do not give me a blood transfusion? Do they have to, like, sign something? Yeah, so, so they, they sign something that says that, the you know, the hospital and the physician's not liable because I do not consent to a blood transfusion, and then you have to respect that. Is that something that's just written up custom or is that actually part of the procedure now? Because I imagine this scenario has happened many times. That specifically is probably custom, but there are, you know, hundreds of forms that you have to sign before you go into surgery. That's normally. And and before you go into surgery, if it's it's something elective or something like planned, then you're going to discuss that with your physician every single step of the way. Dude, the power of thought there to like literally we have an, an answer here like this is you need a blood transfusion or you're going to die. But you, the way you you operate, the way you think overrides that. And you're like, no, I'm I'm good. This is. Yeah. I mean, people people have their own beliefs. You just have to respect that. Yeah, that's true. Um, Who am I to say that I know what's best for you more than, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, doctors by definition, sure. are supposed to 
Sure, my medical knowledge is there, but I, I'm not trying to convince you. If you think that you know what's best for you, then, you know, I'm going to respect that you think that you know what you're be- what's best. Got it. Like the end all be all. It's yeah. not like I have the right to override. Right. What At the end of the day, is. it's you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not, in, I, I don't have, you know, ownership over what you can do with your own body. Mm-hmm. That's all you. I can, I can give you my best advice and tell you what I think. But up at the end of the day, it's your decision. That's how, yeah, that's how it should be too. Right. That's important. Exactly. I've, I've Everyone always should been, have autonomy. Yeah, I've, I've always kind of tripped out on the idea of practicing medicine as I've gotten older because growing up, it's I always viewed doctors as like these mini gods who had the answer to everything. Yeah. And it's, and that, that's how medicine used to be practiced. Let's say, I don't know, 50 years ago, there wasn't really like a, patient communication type of thing it was like a like i know what's best and i'm gonna do what's best for you and like this is the the course of action that we're taking now they're trying to move away from that and medicine is more patient-centered where you know the patient is involved in you know talks of what exactly what we should be doing for your treatment versus you know, 50 years ago, they just laid out a plan for you and, and that's, you know, what they were going to do. Jeez, yeah. I mean, that's a, a benefit, right? The dialogue back and forth between... Yeah, 100%. It, when, when a patient's more... <clears throat> feels more involved in their care, then they're more likely to adhere to, you know, whatever the plan is. So, in my experience... I've, it's gone both ways, but I've gone to a doctor's appointment necessarily, let's say, to solve a specific issue, and I've tried to have dialogue to where I'm not telling my doctor how to do their job, mm-hmm. but I guess I'm that patient that is using some like science terms and is trying to help them diagnose or treat whatever, and the vibe is kind of like, oh, like, like they're not I'm, into it. No, they're like, I'm the specialist here. Like, you uh-huh. just kind of do what I say. or It's weird. I, 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 mean, I shit you not. And I quote. Um, one doctor said, oh, like, ha, ha, I laughed a little bit. Like, <laughs> all you, like, all you uh, students who have been to college think you're, like, doctors or whatever. Um, like, you're re- like, you're reading into it too much. Like, kind of just accept that what's happening is, is random. And do not ex- like do not try to figure out what the variant or mechanism is. Oh, so he didn't want you to understand what was going on. He just wanted you to accept what he was saying. And yeah, I mean, I, I, it was, it's yeah. no secret that doctors have huge egos. Mo- for sure. most of them, for sure. I shouldn't say everyone, but yeah, but you know, for the most part, doctors have huge egos, and and they, I, to their point, pay. Certain patients, I hear it all the time, they'll always say that they think that they know what's best. Mm-hmm. And with your like background of knowledge, it's like if you have a patient telling you one thing when you know it's not that way, it can get annoying. Yeah, I totally agree because no one likes those people yeah. that overstep their boundaries. Like this is medicine. Like, right. But I was simply just base level like, hey, I'm, I'm trying to help you and I know you're trying to help was me. Was he an older guy? No, it was actually an older uh, female. Uh, an, well, an older female. Yeah. An older physician. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. Is like, that's, how, that's how medicine used uh, to be practiced. That's true. 
So like, but then yeah. people also there's a value system on the older wisdom. Like sure, some people are like, course. oh, I don't want a young doctor. They haven't been practicing that long. They don't have as much experience. Blah blah blah. But then on the flip side, I also think no no no. They have a, they've been taught completely different. They're maybe closer to, yeah. they're closer to fresh education and knowledge from, um, like their education and whatnot. Yeah, but for sure. There, I mean, there's pros and cons to either way. There's no substitute for experience. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like a, a physician that has experience and more seniority, as long as they're open, because medicine's always changing. If they're open to updating their practices and you know learning from evidence-based research that we have of what actually works, then there's no substitute for that. Because the more the more you practice, the more like you, the, the more you see, mm-hmm. right? And so you start picking up on patterns. And so an experience there, you can't substitute that experience with just with newer knowledge. The reason why it rubbed me the wrong way is because she, she was like telling me to stop performing the scientific method, just basic trying to figure out uh-huh. a variable. She, she no, like literally just accept what is happening because I don't have a direct answer for you. You definitely don't. Well, you need but a new doctor, I think. I'm trying. Uh, really? Yeah, because that, that was, but she's an amazing practice, like a very renowned place. Did you, did you like working with her? Most of the time, like everything else was great. She was a sweet lady, and uh, it was just this issue that she literally was like, oh, you're, th- you're thinking too much. Like, ha, 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 you guys all think you're scientists. You go to school. And I'm like, I'm just trying to lock down. Like, I'm giving you all of the variables to help you do your job better. Like, yeah. what in my life has changed? Right. That give, ha- me, give you a better picture of, exactly. of my life and my conditions so you can understand it better and it'll help you treat me. Exactly. So um, this brings up the scientific method that I mentioned because – we talked about it a little bit and I think it's just so important in everything tr- you do. in everything. Yeah. It It's a good tool. It's a good system of how to think like it trains your brain. And as you, as you apply it to different aspects of life, business, uh, health, uh, relationships, just of course not being an analytical robot, but just, I think like we, not we jumping. All do it. F- yeah, no, by we all nature, do it. Yeah. By subconsciously you're, Trial and error is is the best way to test things out, really. For sure, but we're also extremely emotional creatures, and True. the past couple of years we've seen how it's prevalent that the emotional brain takes over the ability to kind of step back, A to B to C to D, and just f- try to think in a process instead of just jumping to conclusions or condemning people or getting super angry or... Um, I, I think just the scientific method, it's, it's so important and it's, it's a comforting tool that gives you the ability. You're not going to have all the answers all the time, but Mm -hmm. instead of wondering why or jumping to conclusions and getting super emotional, you can kind of tease out different things and you get what I'm saying? Can you give me an example? Yeah. So let's see here. Um, Let's even bring it into politics. Okay. Because the way I envision the, the scientific method, it's kind of like a funnel. 
everything in life is a series of inputs and outputs on a cellular okay. level, on a political level, and a, a communication level. And of course, there's some things that are very concrete and decisive, like mathematics. And then there's complexities of like communication, speech, psychology, but everything, even if, if you're measuring someone's personality that you get into an argument with, let's say Donald, let's just use Donald Trump as a a common example. Everything he's ever been through in his life, his genetics compounded with his experience is an input that, that leads to a plethora of outputs at any given moment based on how you're reacting to a situation or a question. You get what I'm saying? So if the scientific met to bring it back into that, it's like, I, I'm not so quick to judge people of your own experience. Yeah. I'm not so quick to judge people because people are wrong. And I think there's certain truths that are better than other truths. Like there's, there's right and wrong, but well, there's true. What do you mean? So, because someone speaking their truth, let's say at any given moment, like let's say that they, they, that's truly what they believe in, but it turns out to be wrong. Well, belief in that, and truth are different. That's true. But I think maybe belief turns into truth sometimes and then sometimes it's negated and it's not a fact. Well, then it was never truth to begin with. That's true. I, I agree. That makes sense. So may, so maybe truths exist outside of our heads and then we discover them is what you're saying? Sure. I mean, I, I don't pretend to know everything. Yeah, uh, so course. there are truths out there that I that I'm I probably have a different viewpoint on. That's not they're not actually truth. They're just what I think. Yeah. So this example I'm playing, I, it's a long example. Bear with me. So mm-hmm. um in the series of inputs and outputs, that's a beauty of the scientific method too, is just the ability to realize that new data could come in and you it's not yes. set in stone. Things can change. But um just in in being a little bit less critical of people. Or let's say if someone like cuts you off or if it's like a super, uh, yeah, yeah, like right. someone is really, really mad at you and then you hit them back with the same energy and you get in an argument and people are just, just fucking off and being like dicks to each other. Yeah. Like you didn't know maybe what that person had been through, let's say in their entire life, what they went through 30 minutes before you had that interaction with them. Yeah. You have no idea how other people's lives yeah so even in something as nuanced as interacting with someone conversating Mm -hmm. getting into an argument you can still kind of try to pick up like logical fallacies and perform that scientific method in everything even like in the ability and realizing that you could be wrong at any that's that's the most important part of the scientific method Mm -hmm. i think is yeah you can come up with a theory but being able to accept it when you understand that it's right and being able to reject it when you know that it's wrong. Mm-hmm. It, and yeah, I guess if you can tie that back to like people's beliefs, then that part is lacking in a lot of people is being able to reject their theories, you know, when they're proven wrong. Exactly. Because well, what's your understanding of the scientific method? Let's say like in measuring it within science, cause it's, observing it's performing yeah i mean experiments in, in and just very basic terms it's you know i i have an idea i come up with a theory on what i think it is i set up a, a, a an experiment with you know my materials and methods and and run my experiment 
analyze the results and then, you know, come up with a conclusion. So I don't know. Give, give me an example. Of, so let's of say something that I'm. And then trying to test not only that. So then like once the conclusion you come up with, then it's like, here was my entire research methodology. Sure. You, yeah. You put it out to the world. So then fellow scientists can then, test it and try to debunk it. And if everyone gets the same, right. you, you need the community to, to look at your research because you want to make sure there's so many different aspects to a studies like uh, the rest, like other scientists have to vet it, make sure that your methodology was correct and that the conclusion that you're trying to draw from it isn't due to, to other reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to make sure that whatever the scientific experiment that you're running is, it's actually testing what you're trying to test. Got it. So like you identify exactly what you're measuring and like remove the variables. Try to get rid of as many variables as possible. And that's the challenging part when I'm trying to apply the scientific method to things like personality and speech or yeah. just, just dealing just with so different many different things different in life. There's so many variables you can't hone in on it. But just in a general sequence, I, I will go back to just that input mm -hmm. output in, in everything, like right. in, in a business, like in a specific organization. Every single individual that founded the organization, every person hired, the the city in which it was founded, the country in which mm -hmm. it was founded, the timeline in which it was founded, were more resources available at in nineteen twenty or two thousand for this specific industry. There's so many different uh, so many inputs, different factors, yeah. so many different factors, and just realizing that you can kind of apply that method and measuring everything. It's, it's a trip. I, at least I, I think it's a trip because yeah. I mean, it, it, when you expand it to that, there's, there are so many variables that could happen that you don't know like what exactly it is that, you know, causes certain result. Mm -hmm. But when you, if you can eliminate variables and then isolate a certain factor and then explore that, you know that yeah that, that's it's it. called like bottlenecks in business too because if you have yeah. all these different inputs if you like in a business system if you're trying to recognize the problem or identify the problem and then figure out how to mm -hmm. solve it you're kind of trying just like a body like you're trying to figure out which artery is clogged you know right you identify that bottleneck and you you try to solve it but um just to tie it back into the scientific method and directly applying it to what your practice is going to be that's like when you're running experiments you in order for it to work on like a cellular um, like treatment level, it has, right, it has to be like you have to identify that single like thing you're measuring the variant. It can't be this complex of inputs, even though that might be the reality. Yeah. In order to have like a, a sound experiment, like you have to get things very narrowed down, right? In a, in a lab, that might be possible, but... In real life, that can never happen, mm -hmm. right? There's always going to be certain variables. So the important part, important thing to do, because in, in medicine, you're not typically in a lab. If you're, if you're a physician, then you're running research studies, you know, on, on a cohort of a group of people. Uh, the best thing to do is, is to multiply that data as much as you possibly can. And, you know, and, and build a, a lot of data. So run, you're basically you're running your experiment 
over and over and over and over and over and you keep getting the same result, then you can you can say that something actually has happened. Got it. And most of this cutting edge research and data is driven by universities, right? Like within those labs? Or where Yeah, probably I mean, yeah, universities probably make up the majority of research. There's also private companies as well that, that yeah. do research like like Pfizer. Mm-hmm. Moderna. Yeah, those are all they, they're private companies. companies. They did their own research on vaccines. Oh, who was it though that was stating most God, who was the person? Most of their data and information to create the the private product that they did was funded by like government and university research. Technically, like yeah, you use all the it's base. a lot of background research that gets done in in universities that they used. Mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on the process right now being that it's like professors using students as labor? <laughs> I I worked in a research lab all through college. Mm-hmm. I went to uh, University of California Irvine right here. And yeah, I, I mean, I basically was free labor, I guess, but I was also learning a lot. So there's uh, a trade-off there. Yeah. For sure. There's there's definitely a trade off. I, I I wouldn't even say that it would be fair for me to have been paid at that point anyway because you know I was I, you you joined that research lab voluntarily mm-hmm. and you're you putting you're putting in the amount of hours that you want to put into it. It's all volunteer. It's never like tied into a course where it's oh like, yeah, yeah yeah it it is actually tied into a course. So you so get, has you there get ever a grade been, for it? Has there been an example where let's say one professor who comes up with something just breakthrough cutting edge had all of his data gathered by students who were just like passing a course and then is there ever any like profit from those findings as a student you probably wouldn't get any profit no that that's what i mean that's what i'm trying to like identify malpractice would be like that the boss the professor yeah having students put together or help him create something that then he can go to market with or she can go to market with. Yeah. I mean, probably happens all the time, Dang. but See, that's a little gnarly, but, but I mean, if, in most research universities, I'll just use mine. For example, um, you have a principal investigator who's, you know, the, the, the doctor, the PhD, whatever that they are. They, they come up with the experiment. They put together protocols most the students are learning about you know the the science behind it so mine was a, a physiology lab so the experiments that we were running i was running them so that i could learn the physiology behind it ha- like hands on mm-hmm. um but the phys- the physician or the or the phd whatever it is is the one who's really coming up with the experiment and i'm really just running it got it so there's still busy work within the experiment right but then are you guys still instructed that though to think freely to try to maybe no 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 no. not not in that setting in that setting you're following a protocol that okay because if you're scientific method have volunteers that are doing their own thing then your experiment is ruined got it scientific method right Right, that's like you you need to you need to follow one experiment you can't have like people doing different things in your experiments ruined what were some of the experiments like? Do you remember exactly what you guys were measuring or what hypotheses you were trying to? Yeah, so negate. 
there was one experiment uh, that we were doing. Uh, it was it was a physiology lab, so you're basically just trying to learn um, how different parts of the body work. There's a part of your brain called the pons, and there's a specific nucleus that we were looking at called the parabrachial nucleus, and we were trying to see how uh, how uh, there's a there's a also a nerve called the the vagus nerve. Uh, Las I, Vegas I nerve. I, I don't know. Yeah, the Las Vegas nerve. Uh, I don't know how to explain this, but basically we're trying to look at the effects of uh, the parabrachial nucleus on blood pressure. Blood pre- So the blood pressure was the variant? Blood pressure was the variant, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we, we would raise the uh, blood pressure of you know our, 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 ex- our experimental model animals, mm-hmm. and uh, we would inject a chemical called kynurenic acid. Uh, in t- directly into the parabrachial nucleus of the pons. What a trip! Is it? Yeah. It's usually the mice, right? Why are mice always selected? Just cost, or is it? Do they have something cost? Yeah, I compar- mean, like comparable, comparable to human yeah, tissue so we, or process. We like? actually ran our experiment on cats. Oh, what a trip! Yeah, but yeah, cats and rats are are very common, but r- rats are you know just they're an easy model. To experiment on, yeah, I love cats, tiny, but also small. fuck cats. The cat I scratch love, disease. Oh, I love cats. You, <laughs> you know, I love cats. Yeah, Barton you know, <laughs> Lahanze. Yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> you had you had cat scratch fever. Yeah, you're the only person I've I've ha- I've seen that had that. The physician at the time, I was the first one they had diagnosed two with it, so they couldn't <laughs> figure out what was going on. Yeah, and that, that's a long story, but because uh, it can present as so many other things. It was lymphatic. And, and it's not it was like a lymphatic the first issue. thing on people. Yeah, exactly. They thought I had some rare cancer. They couldn't identify what was going on. It's not the first thing that people think of because they never see it. Dude, he I'd only ever seen it in textbooks. He literally said that I was reviewing some of my old college textbooks. <laughs> yeah. And he identified it from an old book like you just said. Uh-huh. Cat scratch. That's really funny. Cat scratch disease. Yeah. Play that Ted Nugent song, Cat Scratch Fever. <laughs> dude I, i'll never forget that but god it, it was such a that story was such a, a yeah. blessing for me just because it was what happened i was i when was this oh, how many years ago was it so four years ago we were packing i was in miami at that time right yeah we here. were packing up for a a riding trip like dirt bikes out in the desert and whatnot yeah. And my stepdad's cat at the time, this piece of shit, this thing was a dick. What was his name? But like I said earlier, I, I, I'm not too critical because like however they found it, it was fucked up from early on. It was just an angry yeah. thing. You couldn't get close to it or it'd attack you. Mm-hmm. His name was Sid. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I was in the garage like packing up, getting things ready. And it was around there and I kind of just like, oh, like I wasn't like fucking with it, but I went to like kind of <laughs> mess with it. And things slashed me across the hand. My right hand, right over. Uh-huh. What's this vein called? You know? Uh, don't remember. The the vein on your hand. Yeah. So, and I'm like, oh, like, like instantly draws blood. And I'm like, you little fucker. Like, so <laughs> I, I go in and I kind of like just clean it real quick. Didn't do a, a proper clean. Because I'm like rushing uh-huh, trying yeah. to get ready. Right. And I think I put on like a dirt bike glove because I was lifting like wood so and whatnot. Trapped it in there. So I'm just, this thing is not clean. So I remember for a couple months later, 
I think I still have like a little scar from it. There was this weird, almost ingrown hair looking wound on top of the vein. And I remember I went to the doctor to get it treated and they couldn't like, like, oh, what is this? Some sort of like little infection or whatever. I can't remember exactly what they gave me, but that ended up healing. It closed off. Okay. Um, Fast forward, I think like another two or three months and I wake up and there's this lump Uh in my armpit. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? It's kind of. But it was a little bit like fluidy. Yeah, it was a little bit painful, which is good, right? Usually cancerous stuff is, but it's benign. It's not associated with pain. Oh, not necessarily. Oh, really? I always thought like, oh, if it's painful, it's better than if it was a lump that's not painful. No, I don't. No? I don't think that. Okay, I could follows. be wrong, but I've definitely it could go either that. way, really. Um, so it doesn't go away. I go in, um. I think I've gotten a couple blood tests at this point and they can't figure out what's going on. So an ultrasound ordered on my right armpit and it was identified. Mm-hmm. They think it's a lymph node at this point. Yeah. A lymph node is swollen. And um, God, I'll never forget. So the who who's the name of the person that would be running that test? Their, An ultrasound technician? Yeah, okay. exactly. The ultrasound tech. Yeah. This Russian guy, gnarly, <laughs> gnarly deep, like Russian voice. Oh. And he scans it and he looks at it and I'm looking at the screen and it's, it's like a very, very swollen lymph node. And this guy, they're not supposed to say any, too much or diagnose anything there, but he was coming from a good place. He was like, you need to push for biopsy. You need to push for biopsy. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, I'm like, what? Like. He's like I I had a I had lymphoma in two, 2002 and it looked exactly like this. It looked exactly like this. He starts <sighs> saying that. Yeah. He throws out fucking lymphoma <laughs> and his voice too it's burned in my he's That's, like Yeah. He can get in trouble he's for doing for, that. He's coming from a good place but Exactly. If I thought that like if for future patients if I thought that uh, like there was someone might have cancer. I'm not going to tell them you have cancer. He did it fucking right there. <laughs> like, yeah. but no, like, like and I said, obviously it didn't turn out to be cancer, but no. it, that's, that that's putting unneeded stress on someone. When yeah. I'll you, never you don't forget just it. Diagnose someone without knowing the facts. But dude, like I had lymphoma in 2002. It looked exactly like these. And he only had an order for the right armpit, but he like, he like went under the left armpit. He went under my groin area and basically just to identify like that all of them were kind of swollen. This one was most swollen, but all of, all of of my lymph nodes were swollen. Mm. And I'm like, it's fucking terminal. Like if I had, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like, it's terminal. I would would have thought that too. Yeah. And I, especially um, if someone put that in my head. Oh dude, (laughs) I was freaking out. I thought, I I thought I was done. Thought I was done. Yeah, that's why you don't do that. And uh, fuck. So they schedule a biopsy for yeah. I think it was a Tuesday. And the weekend before, I'm like, me, and my dad, Trent, Kylie, we went to the river and just party. And I'm like, I'm a goner. I'm fucking living it up. <laughs> like we're going yeah. gambling. Cash out some of Might the savings. Well. Let's go yep. party. And pulling up Sunday evening into the driveway. And I had already had like Doc's number on speed dial by this point. Mm-hmm. So I uh, 
my dad's dropping me off and I'm like, oh fuck, it's like 5.30 on a Sunday evening. Like, why is the doctor calling? It's either good or bad. Sure. And he sounded a little, he's like, Zach, Zach, like, how's it going? Like, how are you feeling? Like, and he sounded a little hopeful, like kind of excited. Okay. And he's like, Zach, um, um, do you, uh, do you have any cats in the house? <laughs> and I'm like, uh-huh. yeah, we've got, uh, well, we had two. But Sid, that little fuck, yeah. got eaten by a coyote. Mm-hmm. Um, it it would have been after, but anyhow, what goes around comes around. It got eaten by a coyote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's like, "Have you been like bitten or scratched in the past six months to a year?" Blah blah blah. And I'm thinking back, and I'm, like, God, you know what? Yeah, yeah, you know, I was yeah. I was scratched across the hand pretty bad. Around seven months ago. And he's like, Zach, oh, like I, I, I think I identified what's going on. Um, and he threw out the, the the fancy term for it. Bartonella? I don't, what, I, I don't like even know. Like he, he said like the scientific term of what cat scratch disease is called or cat yeah, scratch it's, fever. It's called Bartonella Hansley. Or I, I, Something I, I'm like probably that. pronouncing that wrong. But, but he's that's like, the, yeah. That's I, the organism. He's like, you've, you've got like cat scratch disease, I think is what he said <laughs> after. And I'm like, no way. He's like, yeah, you just, uh, some antibiotics and you're fine. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I I lost so much money on blackjack. (laughs) I could have just, I like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. That was my first thought. I was so relieved. You have liver's remorse. Yeah. (laughs) I was so just grateful and relieved that he was able to identify this. And he literally said, I was reviewing some old like textbook material and, he came. It was his first time. He was a younger doctor. Hence, like you said, the experience sometimes can right. be most beneficial. This was his first time diagnosing right. it. I think uh, Grant can. Can you look up how many? Um, yeah, I'm cat curious, scratch cases are diagnosed. Rare. I think it's it's very small. It's kind of rare. But anywho, the anti uh, some say antibiotics and the antibodies. I think are mm-hmm. in me or whatever. But. Cat scratch across the hand led to that lymph lymph node lymphatic system issue that due to the scientific process in identifying a pathogen or whatever it is an issue, it was able to be resolved before going under the ni- under the knife, which was good because yeah. you know they had measured my blood count and there was nothing wrong with my T cells or what would it be T cells white blood cells to measure cancer for, for ca- I mean well. If it, if it was a increased your, level, your, of, your white blood cell count would probably yeah, and up. and that was fine. So they couldn't figure out what was happening. Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's pretty rare. Is that rare? That's very rare. The incidence right. of patients discharged from hospitals with the diagnosis of cat scratch disease between 0. 0.77, 0. 0.86 per one hundred. Usually kids, fifty five percent of cases. Yeah, because so kids mess with the animal like I did. Bring bringing that back to. Uh, the way that medicine used to be practiced versus now, mm-hmm. if you're listening to your patients, the most important thing that you can do for a diagnosis is getting a patient's history. And so just listening to what your patient has Close to say. Closer. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Listening to what your patient has to say is going to be the best way for you to figure out a diagnosis for them. If he, if he, if he hadn't asked you whether you have cats in your house or not, uh, and he just started doing a biopsy on you, then we never would have figured it out. Mm. 
under the knife for no reason. Yeah. And he just asked you a couple questions. God, it's great. Maybe if it would have been like an older doctor, would have just ordered the biopsy maybe right away instead of. Yeah. If they hadn't, if they had never seen it before and that wasn't on their, their mind, that, then. Yeah. The experiential part of that, isn't that incredible that now he has that one case, which he takes with him mm-hmm. a different input into his brain, into how, what, how his processes are to hopefully diagnose future cat yeah. scratch patients. Now he has experience. Yeah. I is he ever going to diagnose it again? <laughs> Probably not. You think very, so? Very unlikely. God damn it. I mean, if it's <laughs> that fucking cat, dude, I guess if he sees, you know, 200,000 people, then he'll, it'll happen maybe twice. Grant, I'm going to send you like uh, the gnarliest video content I have of Sid just for reference. So you can like put it up there because dude, I have some crate. This thing would, just yeah, I straight up attack you. You remember a little black yeah, he panther? Me too. It was a she, yeah, but that or fr- she, whatever. That little, uh, yeah, literally a little black panther. Yeah, but it, it also brings up how how malleable. Like, yeah, human. Like we're just we've got this soft little skin, you know. We we've mm-hmm. got our brains, and that's what we've got the ability to create weapons and and fuck things up in different ways. But in terms of a little house cat being able to just open you wide open. We're yeah. malleable, dude. We're just of course. We're just little, we're just bags of this meat. Organs weak as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But uh bless our brains. We we've got our brains. Yeah, we're just we're just bags of meat that can think. Bags of meat that can think. Yeah. Um so let's wrap it up. That's yeah. that's a that's a cool spot to we're bags of meat that can think. Any uh, anything you want to say to the peeps? Anything that you're like super excited about in the science frontier? Anything that that you think is going to change the future? Like off the bat, right now, like any scientific methods or research that you think are going to be groundbreaking? Um, I mean, I I Go haven't really explored any of that, but like we were we were talking about last night with with uh with CRISPR, and I think you know a little bit more about that than I do, mm-hmm. but uh, being able to to edit genes and you know cut out certain different types of mutations once you've sequenced someone's genome and identified what uh certain genes that might predispose them to certain diseases being able to edit that cut those genes out and replace them with normal functional genes i think is pretty exciting Uh, yeah that's amazing right and it it brings up the idea too of people um oh that goes against god is there more moral or ethical questions that are associated with utilizing CRISPR. And I think just like anything, um, it's even with Elon Musk Neuralink, it starts off in treating the most like catastrophic, traumatic things that no one would wish upon any other human. But Mm -hmm. you apply that technology to then uh, choosing higher levels of intelligence, height, um, eye color, hair color. And then you start manipulating the body and not just, I don't want, I want to solve like these, these medical issues or health issues, but then you, you almost just start designing your car yeah, you like you went a online. A designer person. A designer person, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's going to be good and bad parts of CRISPR, but yeah, it could, it, it could, there could be a, a total doomsday scenario where, you know, things could go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And like, for example, if you you were saying you can, you can pick a person's height and 
eye color, you know, whatever, you can basically create a, a whole designer person, then, you know, in the wrong hands, in in a government's hands, you could make super soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. Super soldiers. Fuck, dude. Theoretically. No, totally. Yeah. Like, theoretically, yeah. you could do it. And I think that's when just the balancing act of of regulation comes in, just to have an mm-hmm. overseeing department or processes and procedures that prevent... Um, if it were to get into the hands of someone that has not the best intentions that you can kind of catch it. Yeah. I had a a teacher. I don't remember who it was, but uh, I remember his, his concern that he, he talked to us about was he, he said that the next leap forward for a certain country was going to be the first country that could solve gene editing and create their own, you know, type of super soldiers, basically. Jeez. Yeah. I think uh, it's like definitely a possible, but I think eventually yeah, I don't know how soldiers are going to be the best technology we have, like robotic type stuff instead of it. I mean, maybe you'll have... Uh, dis- yeah, exactly. <laughs> you'll have um, like disposable like people. <laughs> like in terms of the uh-huh. super soldiers, like that's just, oh, we're going to just... They're almost like cattle, like... We're going to engineer them just to be these super soldiers. But I think more likely than not, it'll be uh, it'll be technology. It'll be metals. It'll be different compounds like that. Not our our meat vehicles that are super. Yeah, that are super malleable. Uh-huh. But no, that, that's definitely I would say it's going to be groundbreaking in our lifetime. I think CRISPR, the future of that in medicine, mm-hmm. especially in just treating these terrible diseases and gene sequencing that if you can identify and you have the mechanism to solve it, that now that you have that data, that you have the ability to solve these issues and then you're able to see in the real world what you're able to measure how much pain people go through and distress and is it worse at that point to not step in and solve it, to not make it affordable to like, of course, the FDA, like you have to have proven processes before it goes out like wide for everyone to access. But I mean, if we if we know that technology exists and we've proven it, we're kind of I would argue like we're obligated to then try to solve those issues for free. Definitely not for free. <laughs> I mean, I can't say definitely not for free because that's too strong of a word, but that just brings up the open market fact of supply demand capitalism these other complex systems that uh we i think in the united states we're hoping or we wish we can get to a point where medical care is is free or extremely affordable for everyone healthcare sure. um that's a whole other topic but it's a whole other yeah. topic and uh yeah i cuz i i want that for everyone but then I also believe in the ability if you have intellectual material that you want to go to market with that you should be able yeah the to put it out on the free market and get get yeah exactly but god that's, that's a real complex conversations cuz then you're talking about ones and twos right and money it's still an exchange of value but technically money that like this is physical real world this person has this issue is there a way to fix it for them no 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 they can't afford it they have to just go over here and right. deal with it. That's 
fucking challenging. Huge problem that we have right now. Yeah. But um, I think we'll figure it out. I think we'll get CRISPR on our side. Yeah, I don't, I don't know too much about CRISPR. Um, it looks like promising technology, I'm, and I'm like hopeful that it'll they'll figure something out. But I, yeah, I haven't looked into that at all. Well, we'll have to uh, talk more, maybe a solely CRISPR-focused episode in the future where we can just yeah. play that out and... And, uh, dude, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, Thanks for all the, for the science talk. And I, you know me, I geek out on this shit. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Every time we get together, whether yeah, it's just over like, a couple beers over dinner, even, I mean, catch us in the corner at a party or a bar. We're, we're over there talking about like science. It's like a normal conversation. Yeah. yeah. On now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that That's all this is. But, um, yeah, with that being said, talking goes a long way. And uh, thanks for coming on, brother. It's a good time. All right. Thanks. See you guys.